You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me, my co-host, Paul Doroshenko. Hello, Kyla from Vancouver Island. Kyla from Vancouver Island. Yeah, I've been on Vancouver Island all week. All week. And and we'll see if you can get back. Well, I have a reservation. And they claim that you can get on a ferry with a reservation, but I was looking at some of those photos on Twitter of the lineup, and I wonder if you can even get to the ferry terminal. Um, I know that in cases like coming from Swartz Bay going to Vancouver, traditionally on long weekends where they've had backups like that or missing ferries or things like that, what they've done historically has been to have a one lane of the highway with people patrolling it um, for people who have reservations and another lane for people who are standby. Well, let's hope it works. I know I've been through that circumstance before, and the people at BC Ferries seem to have a pretty good capacity to uh, to organize these things. But then you'd think that they would be able to, you know, organize having functional ferries. You would think, but um, they can't. Uh, which actually brings me to our first topic. Well, I thought about that as I mentioned the fact that you were on the island. Yes. Um, I had an interesting question from somebody on Twitter today when I had tweeted about the BC ferries and the problems and, you know, how generally unreliable they are. That We also talked about this uh, yesterday on Soapbox Social with Mo Amir. Um, and they said, I don't understand. Aren't the ferries part of the Trans-Canada Highway? Well, or the provincial highway system? And it can't... Go ahead. No, no, no. You sound like you want to say something. So let's make some suspense. Well, uh, well I, I mean, there's, there's, there's quite a bit um, to talk about there. I listened to you and Mo yesterday and, you know, you guys were, were dissing uh, BC ferries and I get that, but I mean, it's kind of hard to anticipate um, when one of your ferries breaks down, it's not like you can have a backup. Um, the ferry that's broken down is one of the ones that was manufactured in Europe. And one wonders if they're desperately trying to fly a part over uh, or what the holdup is on the repair. If it's something significant, like a major engine failure or something that can't be fixed. Uh, it'd be nice if there was some real, you know, clear statement by BC Ferries about what the problem is. Uh, and it always just dawns on me, as we mentioned at the beginning, that, you know, they run this ferry system and have been running this ferry system for decades and decades and decades, right? And yeah. here they are. Um, and it seems since the pandemic that they are really struggling to run the ferry system. Um, and the ferry system is obviously a key of key importance in British Columbia because there is no other way really to get to the island with your vehicle or get back off the island with your vehicle. Yeah, the only other way to get to the island is to fly. Exactly. And so we're, and barge your car. And I did see, uh, you know, you see when you're flying back and forth, there's C-SPAN barges going all the time, hauling, um, uh, tractor trailers, uh, trailers and, and shipping containers and things like that. Uh, but yeah, as a, as a uh, oh, individual, 
those are full of stolen cars destined for the Middle East to be blown up in terrorist attacks. Probably. Um, most of them, I'm sure we've sorted all that out. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a key thing. It's a, basically it's an essential service and it's one that's operated by the provincial government and nobody right. else can do it. But it's not totally operated by the provincial government, right? That's the, that's the trick of BC ferries. So there are two different sets of ferries in British Columbia, some that constitute part of the provincial highway system and some like BC ferries that do not. So if you're just north of Nacusp and you're trying to go west, you take a ferry there and that's part of the highway system. Yep. Or the ferry um, on Haida Gwaii. Oh yeah, sure enough. Ferry on Haida Gwaii as well. That's part of the highway system. But not the ferry to get from Prince Rupert to Haida Gwaii. Okay. Well, you're going to have to explain why that is because I, you know, you're the native of British Columbia. <laughs> so this is because in BC, what constitutes part of our sort of provincial um, highway system is governed, obviously, as we've talked about many times here, on uh, under the provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act. Um, but there's also the Transportation Act, the Industrial Roads Act, and then a couple other acts, which we'll get to. So highway, for the purposes of the Motor Vehicle Act, is every highway within the meaning of the Transportation Act, every road, lane, street, right of way designed or intended for or used by the general public for the passage of ferries, and every private place or passageway to which the public has access for the purpose of parking or servicing motor vehicles. And we've talked about that definition before. There are also industrial roads, which are roads on crown land that are used for natural resources, machinery, but don't include highways and all of these other roads. So we can put industrial roads aside because BC Ferries is not an industrial road. It's not used primarily for the transportation of natural resources, machinery, materials, or personnel. So then we get to the Transportation Act. And this also determines what is a highway within the meaning of the BC transportation system generally and what is not. And in the definitions section, it refers to both highway and ferry. So highway means a public street, road, trail, lane, bridge, trestle, tunnel, ferry landing, ferry approach, and any other public way or land Im or improvement that becomes or has become a highway by any of the following. And there's a bunch of ways because there can be like declarations or common law dedications or public expenditures, etc. So you hear the definition there, including ferry landing, ferry approach, and you're like, oh, so ferries are highways. But not so fast, Paul. <laughs> okay. because, because ferry is defined in the Transportation Act. And specifically in the Transportation Act, ferry is defined as any vessel by which individuals or goods may be transported over water. That's pretty broad. And that is part of the provincial public highway system. So not your private, uh, privately run, you know, transportation systems, your, your little commute to my my expensive fishing lodge ferry type thing but does not include a ferry to which the coastal ferry act applies or 
a ferry that is part of the regional transportation system as defined in the South Coast British Columbia Transportation Authority Act. Now, I know this is like a lot of legislation referring to other legislation, but we're almost done. The South it better be because I'm starting to drift. Yeah, South Coast Transportation Authority Act is dealing with the sea bus, essentially. That is not a highway. The sea bus, you can you can drink on the sea bus, um, and Transit can get mad at you, but you can't get a DUI <laughs> for being a sea bus passenger. The Coastal Ferry Act is an act that was brought into force and effect in March of 2003. And uh, it created the BC Ferry Corporation. So it used to be that the BC ferries were like entirely run by the provincial government. And then the provincial government basically sold it to this company um, that runs the BC Ferry Authority that's like managed by directors appointed by the government. But it is semi-private. And so it is explicitly excluded from the provincial highway transportation system because it is now run by the BC Ferry Corporation. So my question for you in the end here, and I think I know the answer, mm-hmm. um, if you are stuck waiting in the line for the ferry mm-hmm. uh, and you're sitting in your vehicle, even if it's in park, but you're on the roadway leading up to the ferry terminal, you haven't passed through the gate or even got into that last little stint before the gate and you're sitting there and you're on your cell phone right now mm-hmm. uh pretty good chance at that point that a police officer walking up is going to give you a ticket for using an electronic device but once you've got up to that lineup just before the gate and even better yet past the gate and now you're in line mm-hmm. um you 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 now are no longer part of the purview of the motor vehicle act is that correct Yes, assuming that this is Tawasin Sports Bay, Horseshoe Bay, Departure Bay, Duke Point, um, uh, Tawasin, Mill Bay to uh, Brentwood Bay. Assuming it is a BC Ferry Corporation ferry, then yes. Now, my next question is, if you are on one of those inland ferries that are part of the highway system, um, once you're on the ferry and the ferry is moving, you're not necessarily lawfully parked. Mm-hmm. You're maybe in park, but you're not in a parking spot. Maybe it is for the purpose of the ferry at that point. Mm-hmm. Are you allowed to sit there and use your cell phone? I would say yes. Um, from the perspective of the, the ferry itself is used for the purposes of parking vehicles and you're not in the way of traffic since there's the the traffic is being transported by the ferry. So I would say that would fall within the definition even though you're on something that is a roadway at that point in time as soon as the ferry departs from the shore you are uh corrupt. Yeah, basically. Um and and different because you're entitled to park there while you're trapped for that you know, 20 minute crossing. Okay. So I, I think in the end, the most important thing about this, I don't know why this person was posing the question to you, but to me, the most important thing about this is, you know, can you use your cell phone when you're in the lineup for the ferry and, you know, for the toll booth, 
once you're past the toll booth, you're fine, but you could be there for hours. Um, now, of course, lots of times when you're sitting there in the lineup for the ferry out on the highway, you can stop your car, you know, your car stop, you're turning it off. You're not idling. You can put it in park. You're still, you're not parked. But if you get out of your car, nobody's going to give you any trouble and you can use your phone at that point. But if you're sitting in the driver's seat in that lineup, you know, there are police officers, unfortunately, some are kind of zealous about it. And there are police officers who would consider issuing you an electronic device ticket. Yeah. So there you go. Thank you. Took a long time to get to my question. <laughs> okay. That's a, it's an important question because there's going to be. I know be- it is. And you know what? I will say this now. To any police officers listening and thinking that they're getting an idea, shame on you. Shame on you if you give people a ticket when they're stopped in the lineup for the ferry before they reach the toll for using their cell phone. Shame on you. Yeah, that wouldn't uh, that wouldn't reflect well. No. You can so, see me in court. <laughs> we'll see you in court. Okay. So but- speaking of court, there's been some uh, interesting court decisions. Yes. Thank you for taking my segue. There's a, uh, there's a lawyer named Robert McGee who is probably basking in his success right now. Well, I didn't know the lawyer's name was Robert McGee, but, you know, sure. Um, well, go, Robert McGee. This is a great case. And yes, I get your pun, basking. This is the case of Basque. And this case, Paul, has so many angles to it. I, I I am very interested in where we go from here. So Miss Basque was uh, pulled over, um, charged with impaired driving, and released on an undertaking. So put on a bail condition right then and there, not to drive until either her bail condition was varied or until she um, was sentenced. And in court, uh, she argued that she should get credit. She got 21 months off the road as a part of this condition. She should get credit from the mandatory minimum one-year driving prohibition on conviction for those 21 months that she was without a license so that no further period of driving prohibition would need to be served by her. And the case went sort of back and forth in the lower courts about whether or not credit could be given on a mandatory minimum penalty prohibition um, for somebody who was on a bail condition not to drive. And it went to the Supreme Court of Canada and judgment was released today. So it's interesting. Um, The mandatory minimum has been since about 2003 or something like that. As I recall, it went from uh, three month driving prohibition to a one year um, driving prohibition disqualification on a, on a conviction for, simple, not really aggravated, impaired, or 08, or refusal. And, you know, we wondered for a long time whether or not the bail conditions that some people were placed on should have been considered in there. And honestly, we never, we never thought of even asking. Yeah. I never thought of asking. Yeah. So the Supreme Court of Canada agreed with Ms. Bow that yes, a sentencing judge has the discretion, it's not automatic, it's discretionary, to give credit for time served on a driving prohibition condition as part of your, your bail condition. It's up to the sentencing judge and that that would be deducted from the length of the one-year prohibition. And essentially, the reason for this 
um, is that it's it's essentially like the equivalent of uh, granting um, pre-sentence custody credit. That's codified. But credit can also flow from the common law. So it doesn't have to be in the criminal code in order for it to happen. Uh, it's a discretionary um, issue. And it exists, the court says, harmoniously with um, judicial adherence to the mandatory minimum because there's a distinction between punishment, which means like a deprivation, and sentence, um, which is understood in a judicial decision, essentially as like the uh, decision rendered by the court. And, and it does become important to Ms. Basque the decision rendered by the court or the sentence has to be prospective in that it has to apply from the date of sentencing into the future. It can't be retroactive. So you can't backdate a person's sentence, but you can prospectively sentence them. But punishment is uh, what what is essentially um, the driving prohibition is a punishment. It's a mandatory minimum punishment. Um, not a minimum sentence, because the sentence is the fine, right? Uh, there's only certain sentences you can get. You can get a fine, you can get a discharge, you can get a, a CSO, you can get a, a normal custodial sentence, you can get a suspended sentence, um, which would be a, a probation order. That's the sentence. That's prospective. But the driving prohibition is the punishment. Cool. Well, the court said this would be double punishment. Yeah. If they allowed her to be prohibited from driving for a, another year when she'd served 21 months of a of a de facto driving prohibition as a result of her bail condition. Yes. Fairness dictates that uh, that should be taken into consideration and in a case like hers. doesn't mean it would always be taken into consideration. There might be times when the person's had uh, four convictions and that's the reason they're placed on that bail condition. And that's why, like, you have the codification, the mandatory nature of taking into account pre-sentence custody, but you don't have the mandatory nature of taking it into account. It will continue to be discretionary for sentencing judges whether or not to give credit, and if they give credit, how much credit they give, whether it's one-to-one, -one, whether it's 0.5-to-1, whether it's two-to-one. Exactly. So the discretion's up to the court, but like this case has broad, broad implications. I mean, it's, this is a, like a domino being pushed over and we're going to watch all of the other things, particularly in the driving law context, because how does this factor in for things like, uh, administrative driving prohibition? So if you're pulled over and, uh, in investigated for impaired driving in many parts of this country. Uh, long before you end up going to court, long before you go to answer the charge, you are issued a 90-day driving prohibition right there. Um, roadside often starts right then or within a very short period of time. Uh, and you're stuck with it. And after those 90 days are up, you can go get your license, pay your fines and stuff, and you've still got to deal with your matter in court. Well, you've been prohibited for three months. And if you're convicted down the road in court, you're looking at another one year. So you end up with 15 months. And then uh, for the longest time in BC, because it started 21 days after the date it was served, you'd also get a 24-hour driving prohibition. So it'd be 15 months in a day. And I know that probably still exists in some provinces. Um, <clears throat> and Parliament's intent was that it would be a mandatory minimum of one year. 
And this is now the interplay of provincial legislation, federal legislation, and whether or not that should be considered part of the punishment. Yes. And so the the court's decision does not expressly address this. There's nowhere where they say it's only something that served as part of a bail condition or it's only something that you get released on an undertaking. It's it's the notion of the deprivation that their analysis is grounded in. And so if the deprivation arises from the same transaction, the you know alleged impaired driving incident, and triggers a driving prohibition pursuant to a provincial statute and a driving prohibition pursuant to a federal, um, you know, a federal uh, statute, the criminal code on conviction, then there's nothing about this judgment that explicitly says that can't be taken into account. Or that you have to defer that first prohibition that you have to defer to it when you're sentencing or something along that line, just because it's been written into legislation that there is a driving prohibition that comes from the same transaction in a provincial legislation doesn't mean that that cannot be considered part of the sentence in the end. Yeah. I also have a cautious, a word of caution to people thinking, oh, you know, my client's no longer going to be prohibited for a year if they had some sort of a driving prohibition previously for which the sentencing judge gives them credit. Don't just rush out to plead guilty to impaired driving offenses and think that your client's going to get their license back and move on with their life. After nine months or something like that. Notwithstanding that the judges have this discretion and notwithstanding a judge exercising any of that discretion, the Motor Vehicle Act in BC and the Highway Traffic Act and the Traffic Safety Act and the Motor Vehicles Act and all the other iterations thereof in other provinces and territories doesn't get changed in any way by this judgment. Hasn't it? Whoa. So hang on. Hang oh. on. All right. Um, just Fair because enough. there is a mandatory minimum essentially written into those motor vehicle acts, there's a mandatory minimum written into the criminal code as well. And just because the Motor Vehicle Act says it's by operation of the law, it doesn't expressly say that when it comes to the sentencing, it can't be considered. Now, you know, the problem that we have in BC is as soon as you have a criminal code conviction, um, you've got this automatic thing in ICBC's computer that prohibits the person for a year. Hold on, hold on. But, you, you weren't understanding what I was saying then. Because oh, okay. referring to. I was saying... You can have whatever, like, if, if a judge says, I'm going to give you credit for whatever reason, it doesn't really matter, for three months on your 12 months prohibition. So you're only permitted for nine months. That doesn't change what's going to happen to you under provincial legislation. Because I don't agree. I don't agree. Well, I, will, I will tell you why in the provincial legislation you are incorrect, Paul. Okay, go ahead. Section 232 of the BC Motor Vehicle Act. And it may depend on how the province's legislation is written. But 232 of the Motor Vehicle Act refers to both a person being convicted, which includes an absolute or conditional discharge, a suspended sentence, or that they're, you know, given a, a consequence of a criminal code offense. And then it it, it prohibits them from driving for one three or indefinitely, 
uh, one year, three year, or indefinitely, depending on the number of prior convictions. But it explicitly says a suspension under subsection two is effective from the date of sentencing and is subject to section 233 effective for the following period. So unlike the criminal code, where it doesn't say, it doesn't tie the the driving prohibition to the date of sentencing, and that's one of the things that the court said specifically in Basque, it does in the BC Motor Vehicle Act. It is effective from the date of sentencing for the period set out in 233, 13, or indefinite. See, here's the problem with this. Okay, this is now uh, the provincial government fully stepping into the realm of of legislating uh, criminal code punishment. And it's been my view all along that this is outside of their uh, constitutional authority and nobody's challenged it. But for the provincial government to come and write essentially a sentencing provision for a criminal act fully within the realm of the criminal court, uh, to my mind, is um, is uh, a violation of the um, uh, division of powers um, as spelled out in the BNA Act. And I don't think that this, I, I, you know, it's never been challenged, I know that, but I don't think that this would withstand a challenge for that. And so um, I think the uh, where there is a conflict, the criminal legislation would be federally would be the one that would carry the day. Mm-hmm. Federal paramountcy, and so I don't know that this would that this would act. I know that we've just op- always operated under the assumption that it was, and we've always explained it to the court that it would. But now that we are in circumstances where we have potentially a different sentence um, under the criminal code because we've had the same sentence, right, as under the Motor Vehicle Act with this provision. I think now's the time to challenge this. Well, yeah, because then, you you know, there's the there's the question when you have um, provincial legislation and federal legislation where the provincial legislation supplements as opposed to complements the federal legislation. If they're mirroring it, then you're complementing it. If they're imposing a further length of prohibition on the basis of multiple convictions in a time frame, you can say that's pith and substance, road and highway safety, pattern of illegal conduct. It also does mirror, to some extent, the provisions under the criminal code. But as soon as you supplement it by making the longer prohibition or by hamstringing a judge's ability to apply their judicial discretion or the effect of the application of judicial discretion, then I think you get into a problem. You're now legislating in an area that is specifically for sentencing judges under the criminal code. There you go. So back to the dominoes. Um, I think this may be one of the first dominoes that falls. Uh, we'll see. I mean, it will have to be somebody who's got a conviction and, um, you know, you're the one who does almost all of the impaired driving cases out of our office and you never seem to end up with a client getting convicted of impaired driving or OE. So you're never going to get the chance to do it. What's that? I'm not going to have a conviction. Don't think so lowly of me. Now, what do you succeed in all of your, uh, in all of your cases? So you have to have somebody you can plead guilty or has not succeeded and in this last month, your three for three trials of succeeding. So, um, I, uh, I don't know when you'll ever have the chance to make this argument. You'll have to find somebody else. Yeah. Maybe you can advise some other lawyer who's, who doesn't, 
who hasn't succeeded in their Imperial eight. Yeah. It's going to happen. Uh, the question is whether or not they'll recognize that this is something that's there. And of course, it's also got to be a circumstance where the judge would consider it. So the judge might be saying to themselves, I'm not going to consider the, uh, whether or not the, uh, this is, uh, infringing on, uh, federal paramountcy here in the provincial government, because I wouldn't have issued a driving prohibition of less than a year in any event, despite the fact that the person served 90 days at the beginning. See where that one goes. Well, there you go. It will move slowly in any event. I guarantee that. Speaking of moving slowly, it's time for the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. The reviews are in. This book has been a lifesaver. If you haven't bought a copy yet, I can't recommend it enough. Thanks to the pinpoint method, I feel like I now have concrete strategies I can employ for difficult situations. Published by LexisNexis, Cross-Examination the Pinpoint Method is an essential addition to your bookshelf. Order now. So I'm setting everything up for you this week. Holy. You, you didn't, I don't think you even realized. this. Not, not bad considering I can't see you and we're on a Zoom meeting and I don't even, I don't even know what's next. What's next is the Ridiculous Driver of the Week, which is out of, you guessed it, Florida. A man who, in North Florida, led the police on a 15-mile-an-hour chase uh, throughout North Florida, um, stopped about 67 miles south of Jacksonville, um, and uh, uh, the police made contact with him. He had a torn baggie on his lap and several white flakes scattered across his shorts and on his face, and in his beard. I think we know what that means. Do we know what that? Okay, all right. He, what, ate, what? he ate his drugs. So, oh my gosh! Yeah, eats. All oh my gosh! So that was that the reason for the low speed? Yeah, driving is that the reason for fifteen miles per hour? He was eating. He was busy swallowing his drugs. So oh, he, he was trying to destroy the evidence. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh! Yes. Well, but they've got bodies <laughs> on KansasCity.com. Um, you drive over a bridge and throw it in a river or something, like <laughs> right? But no, uh, or like you know, flutter it out the window, right? Once it goes into the air, it's cocaine, right? It's gonna, it's, they're not gonna get it back. Um, but yeah, he had a vehicle, demanded to know why he'd been stopped. Uh, they had to threaten to tase him to get him out. Um, and then he kept spitting up like a white substance, which the police field tested. Like, don't get the guy medical attention. You think he's swallowed a bag of drugs. Now he's puking up white shit. And yeah, they, get him in an ambulance. They field tested um, before then putting him in an ambulance after it came back positive for cocaine. Um, and uh, yeah, he was charged with resisting an arrest, uh, possession of cocaine and tampering with evidence. But no alligator in his trunk. I thought that's where it was going. No. No. I thought there'd be a python in the car or something. Well, it's very Florida. Yeah. It's true, true Florida. Kids, don't swallow your drugs. Please. Interesting. OJ Simpson invented the low-speed chase. I don't remember there ever being a low-speed chase before that. Now it's part of the part of the common culture. 
the low speed chase this time to eat your drugs. American tradition. America. Well, speaking of America, um, early next week is uh, is uh, the 4th of July, Independence Day. Tomorrow is uh, Canada Day. Everybody should be careful out there on the roads mm-hmm. uh, and uh, do your best not to have an accident because this is uh, the busy time of the year for us as a result of the fact that they are some ridiculous drivers and some people who just make mistakes. Yep. And enforcing far and wide. So if you find yourself facing a driving law related issue over the long weekend, you can always give us a call at 604-685-8889 or find us online at vancouvercriminallaw.com and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law.